Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thank you very much for your questions and your comments. Please keep them coming in. Remember to subscribe to this podcast, tell all of your friends about it, and support the companies that support us, Harborside, Liberty Clothing, and Homegrown. One of the things that we like to do at Radio Free Cannabis is profile the lives of successful cannabis activists. The reason that we do this is because we know from personal experience how hard it is to be a successful cannabis activist how difficult it is to go up against overwhelming odds to confront deeply entrenched stigma. So we like to provide examples. Um, And our guest today, Dr. Peter Grinspoon of Harvard University, was born into cannabis activism. His father, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, also of Harvard, wrote a groundbreaking book in 1971 entitled Marijuana Reconsidered. It was a remarkable book because it was one of the very first books that had been written since Prohibition in 1937 that accurately stated the facts and the science about cannabis. It was a revelation for me uh, and tremendously validating. Uh, I had then been researching primary sources for much earlier Um, And Lester's book was the the first thing that I saw from any respected figure of authority in in the world that we lived in that said positive things about cannabis that validated the science and the history that I was learning in the primary sources. And so it was really strengthening for me at a time in my life. I was quite young, very precocious. And it seemed like the whole world was to trying to convince me uh, about things that I knew were lies about cannabis. And so Lester's book really uh, empowered me in a remarkable way. I'll always be grateful to him for writing it and, and for his lifetime of service. Sadly, we lost Lester Grinspoon earlier this summer when he passed away after this remarkable lifetime of service. I came to understand Peter originally as Lester's son. But as I came to know him and his work better, I've come to recognize Peter as a tremendously original thinker, uh, very insightful, uh, a elegant and powerful writer. His book, uh, No Free Refills, excuse me, uh, is something that we'll be talking about uh, a little bit later. He's uh, been a tremendously effective cannabis activist, uh, a doctor, and a man, I think, of remarkable courage. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. 
So um, let's get right into it. We have a little uh, while to be together and we'll make the most of it here. Um, so, you know, most of our audience uh, has been born into families that were not pro-cannabis, where their parents uh, were anti-cannabis. And so I'm wondering, you know, what was it like to grow up in this this household that, you know, was headed by a cannabis advocate? When did you become aware as a child of Lester's role and what impact did it have in the family? Well, those are three really good questions. Um, three questions at once. First of all, your, um, your childhood home is your childhood home and you don't know anything different. So I didn't realize that like people sitting in my living room smoking pot wasn't normal because that was the only childhood home that I had. Um, you know, growing up, uh, there were people either cannabis proponents sm peaceably smoking joints together or cannabis opponents yelling at each other uh, throughout my childhood. And I just didn't know that that wasn't a normal childhood home. And it wasn't until I was later in my teens or probably, you know, a young adult that I realized that it just, not everybody has their dad on TV all the time. And, you know, has, when you go out for ice cream, their dad bumps into another doctor and gets into a big argument with a friendly argument, but an argument nonetheless about how smoking a joint is healthier than drinking a glass of whole milk. And the other doctor would get really angry and you know, try to argue that, you know, marijuana is much more dangerous than uh, drinking a glass of whole milk. So I, you know, that was the only childhood home that I, that I knew. Um, and it was, it was further complicated by the fact that my brother Danny um, had leukemia and my parents were allowing him, uh, procuring for him illegally cannabis for his cancer-induced nausea and vomiting. So he was allowed to smoke as a teenager for his uh, chemotherapy. So not only were there cannabis activists in my living room smoking, but also they, my family is very much using it for my brother's cancer chemotherapy. So um, to say my household was pro-cannabis um, is pretty much an understatement. You know, it, it, it wasn't as if, you know, they, they weren't aware that it was a drug and, you know, it, was, it wasn't a cure-all, but it was certainly, you know, by the time I entered medical school, I was very much impressed with how it actually was a medicine and it really could help people. So, um, you know, I, I really started medical school with a very different attitude than, than most people come to medical school with. Yeah, it's uh, it was so different from my experience. Um, you know, I, there was a period of time where I did not talk to my father for three years because of our differences around cannabis. I left home, you know, way earlier than I otherwise would have because of those differences so interesting to hear hear about um then you at a pretty early age started feeling activist impulses one of the um uh, pieces in your book that really moved me is uh, an act that you described as an act of eco-terrorism i think i would call it an act of eco-activism um you want to tell us uh, about that about that act well, it was very inspiring, the conversations in our living room. It, it wasn't just people getting stoned. It was like the, you know, political and intellectual who's who. People were doing things and they were like changing the world into like a kid and then a, a tween and then a teen. It was really inspiring. And we wanted to do that too. And I'd always, uh, you know, my dad did a great job in inspiring us more than anything else. And I think if a parent can inspire a kid, they've done a, a, a really good job, you know, and so they, um, you know, my older brother, Danny, who was sick, and my older brother, David, who is an astrobiologist and a writer, um, he's a really great guy. They, um, 
we were fighting the college, the business school in our backyard, which was trying to drain the woods uh, so they could build more buildings. And, you know, it was portrayed to us by our parents and by my older brothers as sort of the evil corporation versus nature. And so we kept trying to block this little creek that they were using to drain uh, the woods. And, you know, it was like our cause. We were trying to save the woods. So we kept building these dams. And it was just a really fun activity to do with my brother, Danny, who was really sick. So we really kept building these more and more elaborate dams and they'd keep bringing these tractors in to knock them down. And then we'd build even more complex dams as well. And we never got to the point of sabotaging the tractors, you know, cause I was just a little kid. You know, I, I worked at Greenpeace later on in my life and that might've occurred to me, but we had, it was just so meaningful. And, you know, it just kind of uh, never left me the desire to, to try to, you know, help the little guy. So um, let's talk about that Greenpeace experience just briefly, and then I'd like to come back to, to Danny. Um, what did you do at Greenpeace? Well, you know, I started out as an administrative assistant and sort of worked my way up to campaign director. I was there for five years. I was originally going to be there for a year or two and then apply to medical school because I, I always wanted to be a doctor. I just wasn't in a big hurry. I'm like, you know, life is long. Who cares if you're a doctor at age 25 or a doctor at age 30? Um, but then, you know, I found it so meaningful and fun. I was part of a, sort of like we were talking about before the show, part of this international community of like-minded people who just wanted to, to prevent climate change and, you know, stop uh, the world from becoming a, a dustbin. Um, so I found it so meaningful. And I ended up working um, on an anti-nuclear campaign. We stopped the Trident nuclear missile test by um, circling a little submarine around uh, a little inflatable motorboat around the nuclear missile, uh, uh, the nuclear submarine, so it couldn't launch its, its missile. It was really fun. Um, I got to go to Chernobyl with a little Geiger counter, which was fun until the bus left without me after dark, which was a little bit scary, but then I finally caught up with the bus. Um, and, you know, we, we just worked really hard. It was so interesting. We'd be, you know, in the Houston ship channel and all these really conservative Texans would be like so anti-Greenpeace until you know, they couldn't farm their oysters because the pollution was so bad. And then they become environmentalists because they'd understand like they're poisoning themselves. And it was so interesting to see people of all types um, from all persuasions unite together and grow and change. Um, it was a really formative experience. And, you know, it just helped me as I went into medical school to understand that you can't really uh, separate people's circumstances from their health. I mean, people live in a certain environment and you know, if they're poor or they can't pay their bills or they live next to a, a dump or a toxic incinerator, their, their health is going to be really affected by this. So that had a really big effect on my, on, my, um, on my medical career because I saw that like people live in a certain environment, in a certain community and in a certain context. So we've, we've, you've mentioned Danny, um, and every time you, you mention his name, it, it resonates with me because one of the experiences that we share is that we both lost brothers growing up. Um, they were both named Danny. Um, my brother died when I was 11, and he was five years old. Um, and um, I'm, I think that I'm, I'm still really trying to figure out the effect that his death had on my life, on you know other things that I've gone through, um, and like my activism. What effect do you think, if any, did 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 Danny's uh, life and death um, have on your subsequent embrace of activism? Or I guess you were embracing it right along with him. I think that to a certain extent, my whole family 
there was something missing because it was such a big loss. I mean, I can't imagine a bigger loss for parents than to lose a kid, especially my parents were such loving parents. And so I think that they sort of switched into like save the world mode in response. And um, I know that I um, switched, you know, I had this just like, you know, just trauma around this. I had a twin brother and an older brother, but just to lose a brother was so traumatic. And, you know, it's, it's no secret because I wrote a book about it that I struggled with opiate addiction, which was a complete fiasco. Um, you know, I had the state police and the DEA raid my office, which is a whole long story. And I actually lost my medical license for three years. Um, and I honestly think that part of my opiate addiction was just like self-treating the like unfigured out sadness and trauma from losing a brother. I don't know. It sounds like from what we talked about before the show that you can relate to that. I totally relate to it. Uh, you know, like you, I have in, at times in my life become dependent on opiates. And I think, you know, ever since my brother died, there's just been this sort of black hole somewhere inside me that I try to fill up. And I think that I've tried to fill it up by rescuing people. I mean, my the circumstances of my brother's death were that uh, one night he just caught a fever all of a sudden and he was taken to the hospital and he never came back. Uh, right? So uh, there was no warning. I had no opportunity to do anything to try and rescue him. And though I think I've spent a lot of my life the best parts of my life really um, in service to people who I think are, are in need. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I definitely feel like uh, the, the struggles that I had with opiates came for me at times when I felt like I was disconnected from that service for some reason. And this void opened up in me and, you know, opiates were an effective blanket to wrap around it for a while. Eventually, you figure out that opiates are like this really selfish, fake happiness, and that real happiness comes from connecting with and helping other people. At least that's what I figured out, and that opiates don't really make you happy. They just make you feel happy. <laughs> they don't make you actually happy, and at least in my opinion, you know, you know, true happiness can only be uh, found from connection with other people, which involves a certain amount of humility. And um, in a lot of ways, my addiction was really important to me because it forced me to rethink everything and to, um, you know, to just approach other people uh, with a lot more, you know, humility and respect. And my relationships have just been so much better since I've been in recovery. And I think I've been a much better doctor because I actually listen to people a lot better. And, um, you know, uh, opiates are just like such a dead end in so many, so many different ways. But it's really amazing when you're in the middle of an opiate addiction, everything seems great. It's so awful how you're so miserable, but you don't realize how miserable you are. And that's why it's so hard to treat people because you just want to say like, hey, I've been there. If you just get off these things, you'll be so much happier, I guarantee. But it's so hard for people to see that when they're in the middle of it. It, it sure is. Um, it, it was, you know, I mean, I, for me, you know, I didn't even realize that I was strung out until it was so late that not being strung out was 
almost not an option for me, right? Just to move through my life. How much happier are you now that you're not on opiate? Like infinitely, right? Oh, infinitely, infinitely. I mean, I was I was miserable when I was doing it, right? Because I I had been through a lot of visionary psychedelic experiences. Um, I had known the difference between between substances that are teachers and healers and substances which are not. Um, but I went through a period of my life where I just took a lot of hits. I took a lot of hits right in a row. And at that time, I was deeply involved in the underground cannabis trade. And when you're in the underground cannabis trade, you inevitably come into contact with people who have other kinds of illegal substances. I came into contact with opiates and they filled that void that was in my chest for a while until the destruction of my life became more painful than any pain that the opiates could kill. And I think that's when a lot of, uh, a lot of people who become dependent become free of their dependencies, right? When, the, when the, the pain of that dependency becomes greater than the pleasure that we derive from it. Absolutely, that's interesting. We both had occupational exposures Mine was with a prescription pad and yours was in the illicit cannabis market, but we, they were both occupational exposures. Uh, and we both uh, were vulnerable because of emotional pain because of the loss of a brother named Danny. Right. <laughs> so I was just, as I've been reading the book, man, I've just been like feeling this really uh, intense connection with you. It's just a different occupation. <laughs> I uh, I once wrote a, a short autobiography that I've never published called Dealer of Medicine. Um, uh, and uh, it took me a while to realize that was what I was doing. But I think that's that's what I've always done. I'd love to um, read it. Well, maybe you'll get the chance someday. Uh, it's, it's still buried away in my manuscript files for now. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, about free refills, about the experiences that led you to write the book, and and what um, after you wrote the book, what that experience was like. Well, I've always kept a journal since age fifteen. It's actually kind of funny to read my journal about what I was like neurotic about and you know enthusiastic about when I was fifteen. Um, but journaling has always been a way for me to deal with like the overload in my mind. If I write it down, I don't. It doesn't like rattle around in my brain. And at least for me, I find journaling to be a really helpful uh, way to deal with things, and especially when I'm stressed out. And so throughout this entire process of like, you know, me getting addicted, me being in this like really stressful marriage, working at this, you know, like 100 hours a week as a doctor or trying to become a doctor. And, um, you know, I just took a lot of notes. Um, and then, um, you know, getting busted, being forced to this 90-day very religious rehab where, like, I'm a Jewish atheist and didn't fit in at all, and, you know, being, um, you know, on probation and just on and on dealing with this Kafkaesque medical board and, you know, being, you know, pro-cannabis, but being in this recovery program where you're not even allowed to mention the word cannabis because it's like a her heretical um, and, you know, so I, I just had a lot of notes and I love writing. Writing, I mean, I really feel like I'm a writer trapped in a doctor's body. Like I'd love to one day just like give it all up and be a writer. That's what I really want to do. So I love writing. It's like my hobby. So I just, um, you know, had time on my hands because I wasn't allowed to be a doctor. And so I just fashioned it into um, a memoir. And then I just reached out to agents uh, sort of coldly blindly, but there's a lot of interest in it because um, it's such a taboo subject. Unfortunately, um, you know, addiction in physicians is very common, but uh, no one talks about it. Nobody asks for help because if you ask for help, instead of getting help, you get in trouble. Instead of help, all they do is yank your license and give you drug tests. They don't actually help you. 
So that just compounds the problem. So I wanted to come out with a memoir just saying people, doctors get addicted, even nice, well-intentioned doctors, anybody can get addicted to opiates and people can get unaddicted. And, you know, um, it's a treatable disease, but they only get better if you don't give up on them. And if you actually help them, they don't get better if stigma is what kills people. So I thought it was really important to come out with the book. Um, and I sort of was expecting negative and positive uh, consequences, but the consequences have only been positive. People have been really understanding and supportive. Um, you know, a few people got annoyed at the tone. They're like, oh, you sound like an arrogant, addicted doctor. I'm like, well, that was the whole point. I was an arrogant, addicted doctor, and I'm so happy to not be an arrogant, addicted doctor anymore. So it, it was a really wonderful process writing the book and speaking about it and having all the all of it off my chest. I mean, the secrets make us sick. I mean, and all the stuff you do when you're addicted, you just feel so guilty about it. People have this misconception of people who are addicted to opiates is like living this hedonistic lifestyle, but they're the most miserable people on earth. They're like ghosts. Uh, it's the most wretched state you could possibly be in. And, you know, I just urge people to treat people suffering from addiction to, with compassion and don't give up on them. They're, they're still there. They're trying. They're just really not in control of what they're doing. So don't give up on them. I, I hate this tough love. Kick them out and let them find their bottom. You know, as they say, dead addicts can't recover. You don't, don't just kick them out. I mean, that's just my little soapbox here, but I feel very strongly about it. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I had an experience to go through the, the whole procedure of NA and urine tests and you know, very intense supervised probation after he got arrested for uh, possession with intent to distribute 219 pounds of cannabis in the year 2000. Uh, and, um, and it was, um, it was, a, it was, it was really a difficult experience for me. I'd been arrested plenty of times before, but it'd been a decade or so. And by 2000, the effects of mass incarceration were really, were really being felt. And uh, it was just so horrifying to me. It was horrifying to me, to, for me personally, to be going through it. But all around me, I just saw the effects of the racial disparity in drug law enforcement. And I was, you know, a very, very often the only white guy, the only white guy at the meeting, the only white guy in jail, the only white guy in the courtroom, uh, except for the lawyers and the judges, of course. Um, uh, and uh, I came away feeling that... Um, that really, you know, most of the quote unquote treatment that they were trying to force me into had the opposite of the desired effect. And uh, I came away, you know, feeling like there's just, there needs to be a revolution in addiction medicine. What are your thoughts? What, what do you think needs to happen that's not happening? Well, first of all, I couldn't agree with you more. I was the only white guy in the probation department. And I thought if this doesn't, if you're not addicted already, this treatment is going to make you seek out drugs because it's so boring and irrelevant and punitive. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. Um, yeah, the, the addiction treatment, a lot of it stems still from Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book in 1937. And it's not really science-based. It's just based on this sort of culture slash cult that has arisen through the 12 steps. And I think they need to sort of modernize it. And I think there's a big, um, there's a big industry, the, the kind of rehab industrial complex is what we call it, where they have these rehab facilities that are just run by people that the only kind of qualifications they have is that they're in recovery themselves and they keep 
passing down the same folklore over and over again. And, and people are like forced uh, by the courts into these rehab programs, for example, like, um, you know, you get busted with for cannabis possession and the judge says, do you want your kid to go to treatment or to jail? And the parents say treatment and they need a diagnosis. So it's cannabis addiction. So the numbers for cannabis addiction get inflated and these kids get stuck in these rehab facilities and they don't really learn anything. And it actually just exposes them to actual drug users. Um, I agree with you. The treatment is much worse than the disease in a lot of these cases. And I think that for real addiction, for like opiates and methamphetamine, I think um, there are new medications that are coming out. I think cannabis can play a role actually in helping people with some of these addictions. And I think that um, outpatient treatment with um, sort of multimodal treatment, you have to treat the underlying um, psychiatric problems because 70 to 80% of people who are addicted have underlying anxiety or depression. So you can't just treat the addiction. You have to also at the same time treat the anxiety and the depression and the trauma, or you're not going to get anywhere with the addiction. And also, they just got to like modernize the treatment. I think community support is really important. Like people need to um, heal together, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, going to an AA meeting and reciting uh, these platitudes from 1937 from the big book of an Alcoholics Anonymous. I think they have to come up with something that's actually relevant to the modern world. Yeah, I mean, the big book is, you know, close to a century old now. And it's very religious, and it turns people off that aren't religious. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was, that was my, I mean, my two big problems were that just the, a vast amount of non-science-based information that was, that was put out at those meetings. Um, and, and not just the religious tone, but the overtly Christian tone. Um, if we were talking about spirit, I actually believe that certainly in my own freeing myself from dependency that reconnecting with the deepest uh, most essential parts of myself with my soul was was really important to doing it but um but when they put me in in a class that was you know basically like bible studies or something totally not my spiritual path like you i was like what am i doing in this room oh my god right but i got to be there uh so yeah uh similar experiences again similar conclusions peter tell us a little bit about your current practice i am a well i spent about half my time being a primary care doctor and the other half of my time doing um cannabis advocacy writing and other stuff um i tend to be uh shrinking the primary care stuff and expanding the cannabis stuff because that's really where my heart lies uh, which I feel a little bit guilty about because there's a shortage of primary care doctors. But I am a primary care doctor in Massachusetts at a very, very underserved community just over the river from Boston called Chelsea. 40% of my patients speak English. Um, they're from, patients are from all over the world. We got slaughtered by coronavirus. We had the highest rates in the country for a couple weeks because people are so poor in the community where I work. Um, I integrate medical cannabis into my practice in a way that I wish everybody else would in that I don't charge people for certifications and I just integrate it as part of routine primary care. You know, if they have insomnia instead of rushing to the ambient, I'm like, why don't we try some CBD? And if that doesn't work, let's ask, let's try a little THC or let's try ambient. You know, it's just one of the many different um, tools we have. You know, if you have chronic pain, you know, sure, let's try a little ibuprofen. But if it starts to become year after year of ibuprofen, let's not destroy your kidneys, let's try some medical cannabis. Why would we try opiates? So I actually integrate medical cannabis into primary care, which I think 
is a much more holistic and uh, graceful way to do it than to like have your primary care doctor not know anything about cannabis and then you see a medical cannabis specialist and you know who are great these guys are wonderful but then they tell you about medical cannabis and it's totally disconnected i wish the primary care doctors were more pro-cannabis in fact the primary care doctors i work with they're all pro-cannabis but they just don't feel comfortable using it yet because they don't know enough about it so you know a lot of us are working really hard on getting doctors more up to speed on how to integrate it in their practice because uh, a lot of the doctors want to be using it and they send patients to me and they're sort of jealous like wow you hardly prescribe any narcotics and you hardly prescribe any benzodiazepines and wow how do you get away with hardly using any ambient you know it's just my life's a lot easier actually because i have this great medicine to use that's very non-toxic that patients love um so it actually makes my life a lot easier as a primary care doctor so i actually think i do it in a way that it should be done not to be you know immodest or anything but it just fits i think it fits really well with primary care for chronic pain insomnia anxiety depression patients see us for arthritic pain um, it would be so cool if all the primary care doctors felt comfortable with medical cannabis and it weren't bifurcated into like, you have to see a special medical cannabis doctor to get your cannabis. Another thing that we agree on, right? Um, uh, the, you know, for me, when I think about cannabis, my experience is a dozen years of counseling patients who were coming for medical cannabis uh, was... Um, that cannabis, contrary to a lot of the laws that have been passed that sort of say, okay, you can use cannabis if you're just about dead from something else. It's a last line of defense. You can only prescribe cannabis when everything else has been tried and failed. Cannabis really should be the first resort, the first thing that you go to. Uh, it's such a gentle uh, healing plant with so few side effects, and the side effects that it has are not you know, terribly unpleasant compared to, uh, to some other side effects that are available. So uh, I think that's exactly the right place to be doing it. And yet, uh, I think that, again, I heard in one of your, your talks, only 13% of U.S. medical schools are teaching about even the existence of the endocannabinoid system. Right, which is, I mean, regardless of what we think about cannabis, that's totally nuts. I mean, because that's such a foundational system that controls all the other systems. I have this other theory. Ready for the theory? This is a theory. My theory is everybody's complaining about how many medications the elderly are on. And I was just reading an article in the New York Times today. I think the article is from yesterday about how there's medication stacking. Like you prescribe a medication, then it gives someone elderly a side effect, then they need another medication, then that gives them a side effect, and they need another medication. But my theory is that cannabis is a way to get elderly people off all these medications. Because with just cannabis, you can get them off their anxiety medication, their sleep medication, um, their muscle relaxant. Um, I'm getting, I just have this theory that we could really approach the polypharmacy problem, which is plaguing uh, elderly patients. You know, they're all on like 15 medications with side effects and none of them want to be with, um, you know, low THC cannabis. I just have this theory that that's going to be how we're going to tackle this problem. I'm looking, I want to write something about this because it's just occurring to me. I don't know why I just, you know how you have a certain, like you have like three or four conversations in a row and it mixes with three or four things you read in a row and then it just a light bulb lights up. And it just hit me that like, I bet we can really tackle the polypharmacy because cannabis, part of the reason they don't show that it performs that well um, in these studies is because they look for one thing. 
how does it work on sleep? But it works on sleep and anxiety and pain together. And they're just studying in these medical studies one thing. But the fact is it helps people in like three or four ways at once. But that's the problem with elderly people. They're on a medication for everything. And I'll bet cannabis can, add, and you know, you talk to so many people that elderly people that have started cannabis and they're like, they've got their life back. They're connecting with other people. They're doing their hobbies again. And they're off so many of their medications. I don't know. I think we could really approach the poly, I'm giving a TED talk. Sorry about that. But I bet we could really approach the polypharmacy um, with the elderly people with cannabis. That would be huge if we could do that. Well, I think there's good science that's coming in. You know, the first uh, study I think that I read about this uh, came out of an Israeli nursing home where something, you know, somewhere around 100 patients were uh, put on a cannabis therapy. And the number of drugs that they were taking, I forget exactly what the number was, but it was they were taking something like an average of five or six drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, before cannabis. And they dropped that consumption by something like 30 or 40% just in the course of the study, which was not tremendously long. They also all reported an immediate improvement in mood and a reduction in, in insomnia. And now, um, have you met Dr. Joe Rosado? Uh, not personally, but I, I, I know who he is. I'll introduce you. Uh, Dr. Joe has done these really compelling case studies. I've heard him present at a couple of conferences and anonymized, of course, but he documents how over the course of just three to six months, he's taken patients who were taking multiple heavy, serious drugs, narcotics, tranquilizers, muscle relaxers, um, uh, sedatives, uh, and not only have they been able to reduce or in some cases eliminate those pharmaceuticals, but there's also been this other range of effects, increased exercise, loss of weight, increased social activity, um, <clears throat> all of these uh, beneficial effects. So I actually think, um, and maybe I'm paranoid, it'd be interesting to get your perspective from a little bit more inside the medical establishment, that this may in fact be the reason that cannabis has had such a difficult time being accepted, that from a dollar point of view, uh, a whole plant cannabis medicine could at a exceptionally low cost treat a very large number of medical conditions that are now being treated with pharmaceuticals at a very high cost with a range of very dangerous side effects. Do you think any of that dynamic is driving prohibition? Well, I think that has driven prohibition um, and um, it certainly affects the doctors that work with big pharma but I don't think that affects like your average doctor. Your average doctor is just trying to take care of their patient. And I think the problem is your average doctor has just been taught such crap about cannabis. Like you should see what's in our medical school textbook. It just reads like um, drug war ideology. Um, you know, the doctors have really been following the patients about cannabis now for decades. Um, and the doctors really need some humility about this whole issue. And they need to just sort of say, we've got this wrong. We need to sort of forget everything we know and start from scratch. So I really think the doctors have not done a very good job with cannabis at all. And I think they need to just relearn and, and, and sort of start from scratch. But I don't think it's like with the doctors, an overt financial incentive. I think it's that they just don't know really how to advise people. And they've been fed a lot of nonsense about it. And it's also like... If I put you on a high blood pressure medication, I'd give you like 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide or 10 milligrams of lisinopril. 
you'd go, you'd fill it, and you'd take it. Whereas to put you on cannabis is to cede a lot of control to the patient, which I think is great, but it requires, again, humility on the part of the doctor. I make some recommendations, I give you a certification, and then you do whatever you want. You talk to the bud tender, and you trial and error. Now, I think that's a great thing. It's like patient empowerment, and I have complete faith that my patients will figure it out. And if they can't figure it out, they'll give me a call and I'll make some suggestions. But doctors just aren't used to that. They're used to giving 10 milligrams of this, take once a day. So it's, a, it's sort of a frame shift for the doctors. So it does take some getting used to. And I do think the doctors have a little bit of a legitimate gripe that there aren't any you know, real consistent strains or doses or units. Um, and I think doctors would feel more comfortable if you know they could say start with one milligram and they go up to two milligrams and if someone would teach them that stuff i think they feel a lot more comfortable uh recommending it so what's it going to take do you think peter to you know to get that 13 percent figure of doctors being educated about cannabis in medical school up to a reasonable level and and beyond that what's it going to take to educate all of the docs who are not in medical school anymore well we will get there. It's just a question in how, about how and how quickly. University of Vermont Medical School has this really good course for doctors on medical cannabis. So of course I went to Harvard and I'm like, they have a good course. Why don't we have a good course? We're not gonna be outdone by University of Vermont. So I'm trying to see if Harvard will bite. And then if Harvard bites, everybody else will bite. So I'm working on it. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't heard back yet. So, um, and you know, our group Doctors for Cannabis Regulation is recruiting doctors and there are a lot of um, different educational programs. Every day I get uh, calls from doctors say, can you talk to me about this? Can you educate me? Um, you know, I have a talk later today, I have a talk tomorrow with, with physicians that are friends. I'm gonna give them a quick you know, mini tutorial and get them up to speed. And you know, word is spreading, but um, I just think that uh, the endocannabinoid system is so foundational that there's just no way it's going to stay out of the medical curriculum for long. Um, but I think that it never hurts to have sustained pressure by activists. And it really helps to have physician activists for medicine, just like it helps to have nursing activists in nursing, because people tend to listen to their own. In dentists, it helps to have you know, pro-cannabis dentists pushing, just because that, that's like the inside circle for any trade group. It helps to have people in the trade group. So um, I'm looking forward to hammering away on this issue. And you know, it, again, it's just like embarrassing how uh, far be how the patients are leading this and the doctors are behind and how uh, how wrong my profession has got this been on this issue. And I'm just looking forward to um, uh, we can do nothing but improve. So I'm looking forward to a lot of improvement. It's a great work that you're up to. You know, my conviction is that when the real history of the rediscovery of the therapeutic properties of cannabis are is written, that it's going to be recognized as the greatest medical breakthrough in, in modern times since maybe germ theory, uh, because it's just such a tremendously effective uh, medicine. Um, so some of your activism is is really medically based. I'd say your practice is 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 cannabis activism. Your work with the doctors groups uh, certainly is. I see you all over social media. I've 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 watched some of the talks that you give around. Super active, and um, and one of the things that that you did to some acclaim was absolutely destroy 
Alex Berenson in a debate. I don't know how to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you did. I had actually for about a year been trying to work out a debate with Alex, and, uh, and we just weren't able to work out the scheduling. And then once I'd heard what a fantastic job that you did, I was like, okay, that's done. <laughs> We're not going to give Alex any more airtime. Don't feed the trolls. Peter's taking care of that one. Could you explain who Alex Berenson is and tell us about that debate? Oh, yeah. He um, was a New York Times reporter who is no longer a New York <laughs> Times reporter. He's now, after getting clubbed senseless on the cannabis issue, uh, migrated to the Fox News ecosystem as a COVID denier, which is his new home. But he wrote a book called Tell Your Children, which was the original name for Reefer Madness before they changed it to Reefer Madness. And he had this theory um, that he uh, substantiated by bending a lot of facts and twisting a lot of logic that um, cannabis causes psychosis, which um, is a very complicated topic. Um, but I don't think you could say cannabis causes psychosis. I don't think you can really say cannabis doesn't cause psychosis either, but you certainly can't say right now cannabis causes psychosis. And that psychotic people are homicidally violent, which isn't true. If anything, psychotic people are victims of violence far more than they're um, perpetrators of violence. So because cannabis causes tons of psychosis, again, not true. And because psychotic people are homicidally violent, again, not true. Cannabis is causing this massive wave of violence. So he was getting people up in arms over um, how cannabis was causing waves and waves of violence. And um, I think because there's just a shortage of like, he's very, you know, he's a good speaker and a good writer because he comes from the genre of writing spy novels. He actually can write a really compelling narrative. No one's gonna say he's not a good writer. Um, I, I conceded that. Um, you know, he wrote a compelling book, which wasn't true at all about how cannabis can cause violence. And again, I think, the prohibitionist cause doesn't have very many eloquent speakers or uh, compelling uh, spokespeople. So they latched onto him and he got a lot of airtime. You know, Malcolm Gladwell uh, drank the Kool-Aid and wrote something in the New Yorker, kind of parodying what Alex Berenson said. And so they invited me at Yale Law School to debate him. And usually in debates on cannabis, I just wing it because, you know, I know this stuff pretty well. I've been involved in it my whole life, but I actually read everything readable to debate Alex. And um, I let him, he had the first statement. And then I just just went, lit into him so heavily for how racist his book is. Because when I read it, I read it like five times, I realized he was twisting all the numbers to try to minimize uh, the racial disparities in the arrests. And he was also um, misportraying psychotic people as, as aggressive when they were victims. And I just lit into him so heavily. Um, actually, the entire auditorium started cheering after I gave my rebuttal of his defense. <laughs> he was like so shell-shocked. And then I kept beating on him in the whole debate that he was back into such a cor corner. He actually said, quote, the entire medical and scientific community is wrong and I'm right. That's how bad the debate was. So um, I felt very good about the debate. Um, his wife looked like, the only bad part is his wife's a doctor and she looked like she was going to cry the whole time. So I felt really guilty about that, but I couldn't really light, lighten up because he was really spreading a lot of misinformation. He was harming people. He literally was harming people. He's harming not just medical cannabis users and harming um, regular cannabis users, but he was harming mentally ill people 
uh, by in keeping on the stigma of, of mental illness. So I felt very good about uh, crushing him in that debate. And, uh, you know, it was really fun. I, I love to debate. You, you did a tremendous job. You got rave, rave reviews on it. And, you know, Berenson, especially now with his transformation to a COVID denier, uh, strikes me like many, many of the people that I met in my journey through the punishment industry. Um, people who really um, were concocting theories that they should have the intelligence to, to, to know better because they had a career. They could get on Fox News. They could sell a book. They could get a lot of interviews and a lot of acclaim. I've had a lot of conversations with Kevin Sabet, uh, who is the director of an organization called Smart Approaches on Marijuana that uh, sort of casts itself as a kinder, gentler, prohibitionist organization. Kevin's an intelligent guy. He and I have sat down and, and, and we've had reasonable conversations. Um, and, and then he goes out and he says something absolutely, completely ridiculous and contrary to what it was that we shared in a conversation. Um, cops that were arresting me, that were busting me, saying things like, oh, I don't have any problem with weed. I just like all the toys. Where else can I get a whole bunch of stuff and cars and be busting through people's doors and do the kind of stuff I like? That's all it was for me. I didn't care about weed. Um, and, and then you just see the amount of damage that's been done because of that kind of activity. And, uh, and I am so glad uh, that people like you have sharp blades uh, at the ready to take on people like Alex Berenson. Um, they're shroud um, of respectability really needs to be stripped away and they need to be exposed uh, for, for the really harmful people that they are. You did a great job and we thank you for doing that. Well, thanks for saying that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that Kevin is sort of enigma because he is a nice guy, but he, he says all these things that are like, he has to know are not true. And I don't know, it brings up the question of integrity um, after a point, you know, and, um, you know, they're so cagey about their funding, smart approaches to marijuana. And it's got to be law enforcement um, that's funding them. And, you know, law enforcement's just got to give up on the cannabis thing. You know, I just, I firmly think that all drugs, not just cannabis, and I know you agree because you do such great work with the last prisoner project and so forth. But, you know, I, drugs never should have been in the clutches of law enforcement. Law enforcement just ruins everybody's life. And it doesn't lower drug use. It, it, all it does is ruin people's lives. Like drugs are a health issue, if they're an issue at all. Like people using drugs without problems isn't even a health issue. But to the extent that there's a health issue, it, sh it should be in the hands of like the public health experts and the doctors and the scientists. Law enforcement should have nothing to do with any drugs. They should be, be totally in a different realm, in my humble opinion. Absolutely agreed. I don't think there's any question that the science and the history demonstrates uh, that approach. You just take a look at, at what is happening in, in places like Portugal that are taking the approach of decriminalizing all drug use. And it's remarkable. Addiction drops. Overdoses drop. Relapses drop. I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable what happens. And I think that it becomes clearer and clearer all the time that, you know, a, a, one of the primary drivers of addiction is trauma. And one of the major ways that people 
are traumatized in the society is by being born into groups that are marginalized, marginalized so other people can have fabulous lives of power and privilege. Um, so yeah, that's one of the reasons cannabis uh, activism has always drawn my interest. It's kind of a keystone to, to so many other things. Um, I want to talk some philosophy with you, Peter, because I love the way that your mind works. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I'd like to first talk about this dichotomy that we have uh, here in the United States, certainly, between medical cannabis and recreational cannabis. Um, the, the term recreational cannabis actually drives me up a tree um, um, uh, because I, you know, it's, it's kind of comparing cannabis use to a, like uh, going out for a walk in the park or, or something like that, right? And it, they're not really comparable uh, things. But, you know, as a doctor, how, how do you look at medical versus recreational? And what about these, what I call the overlooked wellness benefits of cannabis, the way that it can extend patients or spark creativity or heighten appreciation of nature? Right. Well, there's definitely purely recreational use you smoke before going to a party because it's fun. And there's definitely pure medical use, someone with cancer-induced nausea or vomiting just trying to eat and not throw up. But I agree with you that it's sort of a false dichotomy and there's a huge overlap between the two. And, you know, but I do, I do think that, you know, the prohibition is to say medical marijuana is just a smoke screen for legalization. Don't understand that there really is medical marijuana. And I do think that the zealous cannabis activists to say all cannabis use is medical use, that's sort of an exaggeration too, because people do use it recreationally. It is really fun. I mean, why lie about it? That's why it's the most widely used illegal drug in the, in the world. And when it's legal, it's going to be probably the most widely used, if second only to alcohol, legal drug in the world. So I think that there is recreational and there is medical, but there is a large overlap. And, you know, factory worker at the end of a long day needs, he or she needs a drink or a smoke so they can go out and play in the recreational hockey league at night. Uh, so their muscles don't hurt and they have enough energy. Is that recreational or is that medical? Yes, it's both at the same time. So it is a fine line. And then what you were talking about, I mean, cannabis has been used for thousands of years to help people, um, you know, explore and further their appreciation of like their sexuality and their creativity and their appreciation of music and to help them paint and and to write, I mean, you know, most of my book was written when I was, or a lot of it, let's put it this way, the interesting ideas were generated when I, after I had smoked. And, um, you know, it, that is sort of in between recreational and medical because spirituality, sexuality, creativity are really important to who we are. So it's not strictly medical, it's like medical with a small m, but it's, it is recreational too. It's like in this overlap. So I agree with you. There is a tremendous overlap. And to a certain extent, people place, um, you know, such a emphasis on is it medical or recreational when there is a huge overlap. Now, it's interesting. We have these separate regulatory systems. We have medical and then states eventually get to recreational, though some states seem to be going hopefully directly to recreational in, in the upcoming elections. But, you know, it does beg the question of should they be regulated separately if it is a false dichotomy. That might be beyond the scope of our current discussion, but I do agree with you that it is somewhat of a false uh, distinction. Well, we're putting the boundaries around this discussion, so it absolutely is, is not uh, beyond the bounds of the discussion. 
The way that, that I look at this is, is I, I actually do believe that all cannabis use is wellness use, with a few exceptions. I, you know, like any psychoactive substance, some people can manage to find a way to misuse cannabis. Um, but the downsides of that misuse are far less than the misuse of any other psychoactive substance that I'm familiar with. Um, but generally, other than those very few exceptions, I see all cannabis use as wellness because uh, on the one hand, you have the grave illnesses, epilepsy, cancer, that respond to cannabis. That's certainly an enhancement of wellness, right? Uh, then you've got things uh, that we were talking about, sexuality, create, creativity, um, that are really important parts of being a well-balanced uh, human being. Um, there's the psychological effects of extending patience and helping people find less violent ways to, to resolve conflicts that I think are, are also about wellness. But even, you know, what you were talking about, right, You're going to a party, right? I think the joy and ecstasy are normal and desirable parts of the human experience. Uh, hopefully all of us get to experience joy and ecstasy in, in our lifetimes. And cannabis is, is one of the most reliable and effective and safe ways to, to get in touch with, with those kinds of experiences. So for me, I, I just, for me, it's all wellness. What about, what about a teenager that smokes it and plays too many video games because it makes the video games so interesting? I mean, I, I can think of examples where it sort of like makes the wrong thing too interesting. Well, I think that there are examples of people who misuse cannabis, right? Who have stuff going on in their lives that they don't want to deal with, whether it's homework or whether it's a difficult conversation with a spouse. Uh, and they will use cannabis as a way of distancing themselves from that, that uncomfortable situation. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's absolutely possible. I've, you know, I've known kids who have sat down on a couch with a bong and stayed there for two or three years and basically not done anything else. Generally though, at the end of the two or three years, they go, damn, I've been sitting here on this couch for two and a half years. I haven't gotten anything done. That's really not too cool. I think I got to take a look at the way I'm handling this thing. Right. And their brain isn't shot. Their liver's not destroyed. They're not so hopelessly addicted to a substance that they can never free themselves from its tentacles. So, um, yeah, long, lots, lots of, 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 of room to explore that. So, I mean, I, I'd actually would like to see uh, cannabis regulated um, kind of uh, combining the two systems, right? I think that there is going to be need for pharmaceutical cannabis preparations where individual molecules are isolated, uh, are recombined, are maybe um, put into some kind of unique delivery system uh, for really specific and grave uh, uh, illnesses. Um, but I think that that's a relatively small portion of the people who can be served by cannabis. I think 95% of people who are going to be using cannabis can be served with the kind of whole plant extract or just whole plant flowers that you can you can get in dispensaries um, uh, all over the place. Right? Uh, and so what I'd like to see is the same standards that are applied 
between nutri nutritional uh, nutritional supplements and pharmaceuticals. You know, what the FDA says is, look, if you if you if you take a monomolecule isolate out of a, out of a plant or anything else, um, and and then uh, you have done something that brings you into pharmaceutical regulation. But as long as what you're dealing with is a whole plant or a whole plant extract, then you're free from that kind of regulation and. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to see cannabis sold basically in, you know, the way that supplements are sold at GNC. Sort of like CBD is sold. Yeah. 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 Well, absolutely. Yeah. It might not be that small a market. I mean, if THCV, for example, actually controls blood sugar and appetite, I think about a third of my patients are going to be on it. Um, I think some of these cannabinoids could like absolutely revolutionize medical care as we get to know them. Um, I think it's going to be just radical, but I, I agree with you. It, 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 it's a plant. There is a huge overlap between medical and recreational. I think that this, the separate uh, regulation of medical and recreational is sort of response to the war on drugs and medical was the only thing people could establish that people were comfortable to sort of a historical adaptation. But now that you step back a little bit, I agree that it doesn't really make sense to have separate systems. Yeah, you know, medical cannabis was the best we could do at the time. And even the term recreational cannabis, which I abhor now, it was a creation of the of our movement, right? Because before we had the term recreational cannabis, all cannabis use was abuse. There wasn't a word for cannabis use that wasn't drug abuse. What's a better word? Uh, adult use or adult use? Adult use. Adults use cannabis for a lot of different things, and they should be allowed to make their own decisions about about how to use it. Um, and yes, if we're talking about a you know highly manipulated substance that might have severe side effects um, and other dangers, then it should be regulated. But we know that whole plant cannabis doesn't fall in that category. What about um, enhancement, medical use, and enhancement? Yeah, medical use. Um, uh, but you know, I I. If, if I was a doctor, in very rare cases, would I be prescribing a monomolecule isolate or a combination of isolates? Because what I know is that those substances frequently are more dangerous and always are much more expensive. And so, you know, like I look at the, um, at, at uh, Sativex um, that's uh, being put out uh, by a certain pharmaceutical company, I won't name the name, but I talked to a woman in Chile was the first woman who was approved for medical cannabis in her country and they forced her to get her supply imported uh, from uh, another country uh, of this of this substance Sativex. Now Sativex was a 50-50 THC to CBD tincture in an alcohol suspension in a spray bottle. Um, uh, I sell at Harborside uh, a little jar of that for 30 bucks. And most patients who use it uh, are hard pressed to use more than two or three in a week. And so you're talking about a fraction uh, of the cost of, of, of pharmaceutical costs. So that would be my default. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree at all. I just, I, I can't wait till we learn more about these different, different cannabinoids. So let's, let's go way out here on the, on the philosophical tip. Um, uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot on this show is the idea of one tribe, the idea that there are now hundreds of millions of people all around the world 
who have had uh, a set of experiences with cannabis and, and similar experiences, and that out of those experiences, they've drawn some lessons, and that out of those lessons, uh, they've developed a value system. Not everybody who uses cannabis, but a very large number of people, and people, I think, who have a really close relationship with the plant. And so um, uh, I've, I've, I've kicked this idea around with other people who have done a lot of study and a lot of thinking about cannabis that I really ex respect, who basically have said, you know, no, Steve, there's this idea that there's a universal uh, effect that people have with cannabis and that it gets expressed in a value system is contradicted uh, by history. And they point to cultures that have used cannabis as a preparation for battle, for example. What are your thoughts on this one? It's another one of these really complex cannabis questions that, uh, that I, I, think I, I think I know where I'm headed with it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think cannabinoids, by the way they work on your emotional processing, I think that they really facilitate connection with other people. You know, not that you people can't use them alone, solitary, enjoy nature and so forth. But I think one of the amazing things about them, and, you know, I, I saw this growing up and I heard, you know, my dad and Carl Sagan talking about this a lot, about one of the most useful things that cannab cannabinoids and cannabis can do is help people connect with each other and connect together. And, you know, in our society, we're facing this epidemic of loneliness and you know, I think that's part of the appeal for, for example, elderly people are adopting cannabis more rapidly than anybody else. Because, and part of that's because it helps them connect again. And I think that while there are cultural differences, our brain chemistries are the same. Everybody has the same endocannabinoid system. And I think that we all have the same amygdala, for example, which is how we process emotions. And we all feel the same euphoria and sort of good humor towards others when we use cannabis. So I tend to agree with your theory of the one tribe. I think that those soldiers that are preparing for battle still felt camaraderie with each other. Um, I think that, you know, cultural differences do set in setting do play a huge role, but there still can be a lot of things that are universal um, while you factor in you know, the, the relativism of different cultures. And I think that the, the main thing that cannabis really does for people is, is help them feel connectedness, not only with nature, but with each other. And I think that is something that, in my opinion, can transcend cultural differences. So I agree with you that cannabis um, can contribute to kind of a, a human um, commonality that, that can actually really help us get through um, get through um, some of these really scary and dark times that we're in. You know, I, I also wonder, this is going to get me in a lot of trouble, but I, you know, physicians have the highest suicide rate of any profession and, you know, 55% of them are suffering from burnout and cannabis and physicians is such a taboo subject. You're not even allowed to say whether you smoke or not as a physician because you get in trouble with the medical board. But I just wonder if the exact qualities of cannabis, finding meaning in your life and, living in the present and connecting with other people and engaging with nature and hobbies and art. And um, those are the exact things that physicians need to survive. Uh, I just wonder if in our stressed out society, cannabis is gonna play an increasing role in helping people, again, get through these dark times. So that was a long answer to your 
complex question. And but I agree with you. I think that there is commonality that can that can come from cannabis that would transcend cultural differences. Um, that's a great take on it. I really appreciate your medical perspective on that. And, and also you mentioning the conversations between Carl Sagan and your father. Um, I've been doing a lot of research into cannabis and spirituality, and I was trying to understand the scientific basis of, of, of what I think is a connection to spirit that this plant gives people. And <clears throat> there are some great quotes from Carl Sagan, um, uh, where he was talking about some of the most profound experiences he had in his life were when he connected with people through cannabis. And <clears throat> I believe, and it's the reason that this podcast exists, it's the reason that really it's the work of the rest of my life, uh, that it's true, um, that this plant really does confer specific kind of value system, not on everybody who consumes it, but certainly on a very, very large number of us. And that as we look around at what's happening in the world today, where we see dictators and despots uh, with increasing power and apparently increasing impunity, where we see ethnic and racial rivalries getting worse instead of getting better, where we see religious warfare, where we see uh, the rampant destruction of the planet. I just read this horrifying article about the rate of species extinction on the planet now. And young people are in such a state of despair all around the world that they are competing with each other to kill each other in, 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 in ever more flamboyant ways, and in some cases even to, to live stream it. So if there was ever a time that we needed a plant that helps us connect with each other, to appreciate each other's humanity, to awaken uh, a light of compassion in our hearts, uh, that plant is cannabis and that time is now. And, um, and my belief is that if we don't all get to it really quickly, if we don't educate all of the doctors, if we don't rip down these ridiculous laws, that we may be forfeiting our very best last chance to save this planet. I'm with you. Right on to the barricades, brother. <laughs> it's going to take more than cannabis, unfortunately. Uh, it's going to take everything we have. Uh, it will. It will. But I think that, you know, all of the other things that we have flow out of a very fundamental change in human thought and behavior that needs to happen. And my experience has been the cannabis and the other visionary plants are the best tools that we have at making that change. Absolutely. I mean, they're a huge uh, component of it. Peter, I'm, I'm so glad that we're in agreement. Um, again, uh, your family uh, is validating with your work, your science, your medical perspective, uh, some of the work that I've been doing in different channels. Uh, it's really been great talking to you. What, what else should the audience know about what you're up to and how can they stay in touch with you? Um, well, what am I up to? I'm doing a lot of writing um, and um, you know, I'm just doing my thing. Um, I uh, am now a health and wellness coach. So I got certified as a health and wellness coach. So I am open uh, accepting clients for that. If people need health and wellness coaching, I incorporate cannabis into that. I thought that was a good way to blend cannabis and primary care. Um, so that's been really fun and interesting. And people can keep in touch. They can reach me by just um, sending me a message through my website at petergrinspoon.com, or they could follow me on Twitter at 
uh, Peter underscore Grinspoon. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I, I love um, staying involved in all of these discussions and debates. And finally, they could check out our nonprofit, which is Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which, as we mentioned previously, is working on legalization because as you live in Massachusetts or California, you can uh, tend to forget that there are states where they don't even have medical um, and there are many states where they don't have um, adult use or recreational. So we're working really hard um, on a lot of these local uh, or statewide initiatives. And also we're working hard to get uh, physicians more up to speed on cannabis. Um, and a lot of physicians are, are hungry for this information, which is really the encouraging part. So I would say uh, Twitter, my website, or uh, just checking out our organization, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. All right, Peter, thank you so much for being with us here today. To all of you who are in our audience, remember that no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what difficulty you may be facing, no matter how lonely you feel, that if you love this plant and you have a relationship with this plant, that there are hundreds of millions of people just like you all around the world. And we're on a mission. We're on a mission to make sure that all of us have safe and affordable and legal access to this plant and to make sure that everybody who's been locked up, who's had their lives stolen, is released and gets an opportunity to rebuild what was taken from them. Until the next time, be well, stay free, stay strong.